Acts chapter 16. Last week we saw that uh, the goal of God is the glory of God in all the earth. That, that's God's goal. Uh, now that might sound basic. And if you've been in the church, that, that might sound like pretty obvious. But if you're new to the church, or maybe you're not even a Christian, it might actually sound pretty egotistical of God to be for God. Like that God is for himself. Uh, but the truth is um, that, that it's true for two, two basic reasons. Let, let me just briefly name those. The first is that not even God would break the first commandment. Right? That not even God would break his own commandment. That there shall be no other gods before me. So he must be, have all the glory. And the second reason is by consequence. What would it mean if God was not for his own glory? What if there was something else out there of, of greater significance than God? Obviously, that, that, is not, that is not true. So then even by consequence, it only makes sense that God is for God. So since God is for his own glory, that tells us something about us. There's implications to our life because God is about his own glory. There are many implications. They're, they're defining. They are impactful. They are life-altering. If God is for his glory, then your life is not for you. You exist for him. He has sole authority over all things because all of it is for him. As we move through the biblical narrative in the Bible, we come into the New Testament and we see that God has sent Jesus, and we saw last week that Jesus is the glory of the invisible God. That's what Jesus came to, to show. He says that if you've seen me, you've seen God. That's how that works. And at the end of his life and his earthly ministry, Jesus commissions his disciples, his followers. <clears throat> and he commissions them to be Witnesses in Acts 1.8. Later, Paul talks about it being an ambassador for Jesus. And they were to take his message to all the earth that God's glory would be made known and that people would be saved. That, that's what Jesus left his disciples with. And as we come into the book of Acts, we're halfway through the book by the time we get to 16, over halfway through the book by the time we get to chapter 16. And the writer Luke, here in 16, begins detailing for us the second missionary journey of another one of Jesus' followers named Paul, who was at one time named Saul, you might recall. That's pretty good. I should have written that down. <laughs> we come to the passage that Orville just read for us, and we see that, that Paul is headed out again. And we learn uh, about another follower named Timothy that has recently joined Paul and now Silas as they travel from city to city in actually the reverse order of what he just had done on his first missionary journey. Uh, this new partnership comes on the heels of uh, what we find in chapter 15, where Paul and his ministry partner Barnabas part ways. 
and they part ways over a, a sharp disagreement uh, concerning Mark or John Mark. We see that at the end of chapter 15. It's not a doctrinal disagreement. That's not why they separated. There was some sort of a personal matter, possibly or probably due to earlier in the missionary journey, Mark had, had left Paul and Barnabas, chapter 13, verse 13. And so Paul wasn't really excited about Mark anymore. He didn't think uh, Mark was, was in it. And so he, he didn't want any to be, to be in ministry with him at that time. But in God's wisdom, and that's always, uh, good came from this. Because by this sharp disagreement over a non-doctrinal issue, the missionary endeavor actually multiplied. It went from two guys together to now two teams, and then they were adding people with them, as we see here with Timothy. So neither man, neither Paul nor Barnabas, when they had this disagreement, stopped doing ministry. They stopped pursuing the mission of God. Rather, they just continued with other partners. And we say, why, why are we talking about this? Well, here, here's one thing. It, it's the context. But also, I think that in many ways, it's a lesson of how to not let personal disagreements over non-doctrinal things define us or ruin us, or, or get us off course from the mission. Satan would love nothing more than to take personal issues and separate believers so much so that the mission stops. And here we see a disagreement come that was apparently serious enough that Paul says, I don't want to go on with, with this man. And Barnabas says, well, I do. And it was significant enough that this relationship separated, but they didn't separate from the mission of God. We actually come to find out later in Paul's writings in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Uh, disagreements don't have to be the end. They don't have to be final. So the disagreements that you have in your life, there's, there's a, a possibility, a real possibility, that Christians can work things out, that reconciliation can come. And that's a good thing. It's good for us to know and believe and even see here godly men working out their disagreements. Additionally, I think we see here how God works. How God causes all things to work together for good, even the disagreements. Even the things that don't look like they should work out right, they're working out right. right so here, the, this missionary team is blowing up. Oh no, what's going to happen? Oh, let's just multiply the mission. <laughs> How about we do it that way? We look, we look all through the Bible and we see this kind of stuff. We look to, to the Old Testament and we see Joseph being sold into slavery. Like, oh my, Joseph's being sold into slavery. That's terrible. He's going, being sent off in, into Egypt. That's, that's terrible. We actually come to find out that God was all over that. The whole point of that was to get Joseph to Egypt to help prepare the land so that the people of God could be saved. God is causing all things to work together for good. Herod's census when Jesus was being born brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Why? To fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. Earlier in the book of Acts, the, the church is, is suffering persecution and they're being spread out. They're being scattered. You might say, oh no, the, the people are being scattered. But as they scattered, so too did the gospel message. And it spread through all the world. The known world, even so much so that they are told or they are called the, the people who turned the world upside down. That's what persecution did. It spread the people, but it also spread the gospel. 
And it's true today that God uses unlikely, unforeseen circumstances to fulfill his mission. God is always working. Sometimes we might say, I don't understand why God, and you fill in the blank. Yeah, of course you don't. Of course you don't. His ways are not your ways. There, of course, there's going to be things. And if you can only agree with a God who agrees with you, then that's a God of your own making. And if you can only understand the things, if you can only believe the things that you can understand, then that limits what you can believe. <laughs> that, that's not an all-powerful God. That's not an all-knowing all God. That's a God that's as, as smart as you are. That's not a God at all. That's not a, that's not a deity at all. That's yourself. That's self-worship. Well, we come into the rest of chapter 16, uh, verse 3. And um, we see that they're talking about a decision for Timothy to be circumcised, which is a, you know, such a fun topic to talk about in front of you know, two or 300 people. But here's the point. The, the point was, is that uh, Timothy was Jewish, uh, his mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek. So he was, he was not, not one of anything. He was a mix. And subsequently, he had not been circumcised as a child. Uh, the decision was made to have him circumcised, not in order to fulfill the law's requirements so as to be acceptable to God. That is not what's happening here. Paul's not saying, Timothy, you must be circumcised in order to fill the law so that you're right with God. He's, that's not what's happening here. In fact, we find out in chapter 15 earlier that this was, this was a problem. There were some who still thought that. They still thought they had to fulfill the, the law's requirements in order to be made right with God. And we come to find out that, that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in him now we are made acceptable to God through repentance and faith. So why would he have him circumcised then? Just after they had this whole, whole issue about the church misunderstanding circumcision, why would he have Timothy circumcised? Well, the reason was, was so that they could have gospel ministry in places where Timothy couldn't go because he was uncircumcised, namely the synagogue, namely the Jewish people. He wouldn't have been allowed. He wouldn't have been accepted in those places. And so for the sake of gospel ministry, Paul has him circumcised. Paul was thinking strategically and this is consistent with Paul's desire to become all things to all people that by all means might save some. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. Paul was aggressive about making disciples. He knew what was at stake. He knew about unbelief. He knew about the blessings of the gospel of Jesus. And so we come to the end of this paragraph, and in verse 5 it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. There's two things we want to see here this morning, two primary principles. Number one, churches were strengthened in the faith. Number two, churches increased in numbers daily. Uh, to reorder and reword this slightly, it could be said, it has been said, that churches were making more and better disciples. More and better disciples. So we're going to take it in the reverse order of what is found in verse 5 and start with more disciples. They increased in numbers daily. This increasing or this adding to, to the church is not isolated here to chapter 16, verse 5. 
Actually, we see this multiple times throughout the early church. We see it in chapter 2, verses 41 and 47, where it talks about adding to the church. In chapter 5, verse 14, it says that believers were added to the Lord. In verse chapter 6, verse 1, it talks about the increasing number. In verse 7, it talks about multiplying. That's in chapter 6. That's in spite of what was already happening in the church. In chapter 6, it comes after chapter 5, you probably knew that part, but in chapter 5, some, some difficult things had already happened. Ananias and Sapphira, you might not know those names, but two people, uh, they, a married couple, they lied about an offering that they brought. They said that they had brought all the offering, but the fact is that they didn't bring all the offering. They lied. And the consequence of their lying was that God killed them. He struck them dead. We also find in chapter 5 that the apostles are arrested for preaching the gospel and they're beaten. Here in chapter 6, as it is talking about this multiplication, this increasing, we find out there's a problem in the church. The widows are being neglected. Not everything was perfect in the early church. So it's not like, oh, that was just a heyday. Everyone was just lots of salvations and there was no problems. No, there were problems. And yet the gospel was going forward and people were coming to Christ. Chapter 11, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 24. Now this is not descriptive. It is descriptive, excuse me. It's not prescriptive. Meaning, this is not to say that every church in 2018 should be adding to their numbers daily. That's not what the point of Acts is. Acts is a historical account of what God did in the local church. That's what this is. However, there are principles that we can see here. This idea of adding, increasing, multiplying, it was and it is God's plan for the church. God's plan has always been multiplication. It was true at creation and it's true in conversion that God wants more people to come to know Jesus. He wants people who know Jesus to tell other people about Jesus. Now, much of the emphasis um, in the church world in the past probably 20, 25 years uh, has been on, on this idea of church growth. Some of you may have heard of church growth movements or some churches who want to, to uh, be so seeker sensitive that they want more and more people to come to their church. So they ask the question, what can we do to try to get more people into our church? So what would, what would people outside of the church like? And let's do that. And then once they're here, then we'll, then we'll get some gospel in there. And then we'll get more theological matters in there. The problem with the philosophy is that it begins at the wrong place. It begins with this idea that somehow the felt need is the most important need. That's not true. Our most important need is, is, is not our felt need. It's our, it's our heart need. In any, any theology or any philosophy that begins with somehow a, a, a manipulative or a, a, a soft launch into saying, Let, let's do this and then we'll get the gospel in, is misrepresenting what the gospel actually is. It's misrepresenting what the New Testament actually is. It's misrepresenting what the church actually is. The gospel does not begin there. The gospel begins that God so loved the world. The gospel begins with God. And then the gospel tells us about us. And then it tells us about Jesus. And then it tells us about our need to respond to Jesus. The church is not called to make seekers more comfortable, but rather are called to make disciples. Now that does not mean we don't want people to come here who are looking. If you're here today, you're saying, I'm kind of looking. I'm kind of questioning. We want you here. 
But we want you here to hear the truth. And the truth is that God so loved the world. The truth is that you need Jesus. The truth isn't that you need some felt need met. The truth is that you need a, a heart need. And Jesus has come to meet that need. We want to see more people know Jesus, follow Jesus, and become more like Jesus. That's what we're about, right? And this brings glory to God. It is worth our time. This pursuit is worth it. Don't be distracted. There are lots of things in this world that will distract us from this. Sometimes this could be called mission drift in an organization where you have a mission. Somehow all these other good ideas might come in and start to get you off course. Don't be distracted. The mission of God is the glory of God. How do we do that? By making disciples. It's easy to become comfortable. It's easy to become inwardly focused, to care only about your needs or our needs as a church. Our tribe, and we don't think outside of ourselves. We live in a town of 4,000, approximately 4,000 people. It's a pretty small town. But we live in a county of nearly 54,000 people. And sitting here this morning, there are a lot of people who are not from Cairo. So our reach, the point is, is our reach is, is bigger than Cairo. And that's a good thing. It is said that nearly a quarter of that 54,000 people is under the age of 18. So why do we care about children? Why do we care about youth ministry? Because there's a, a fourth of our county that's under the age of 18. I think we should give some attention to that. And we are. Religiously, there was a, a survey taken. This is the, the newest data that's available. It's eight years old, though. That they, uh, they asked about adherence to particular quote-unquote, religions. Now, side note, religion is not my word, it's their word. Uh, We're not a religion. Christianity is not a religion. Jesus is not a religion. The gospel is not a religion. Religion says you do and God accepts you. The gospel says the exact opposite of that. The gospel says because of Jesus, you're accepted. Now, go do. So the doing is in response to the accepted. It's not to get accepted. It's a massive difference. It's an eternal difference, actually. But this survey was taken, and it was said that of all adherents to any religion, they list uh, three and then an an other category, they found that 41.6% of this 54,000-ish people, 41.6% actually held to a religion. They actually claimed something. 41.6. I think I actually have this up here. Sorry. That would be good. 41.6. Now that doesn't mean 41.6% are believers. That's not what that means. It just means that 41.6% of the people said that they have a religious affiliation. That's all that says. But if you think about that, you might say, well, that's not 100%. So... That means that 58.4% of the people in the county claim no religious adherence. Now, that does not mean, again, let's be clear, that is not saying that that 58.4% of the people are unsaved. It's not what that's saying. It could be saying that. It could be saying more than that. Just because you adhere to any one of those four things doesn't mean you're actually a Christian either. 
But the point is, is this category of, of what they, is called none <laughs> is a societal trend. It's been happening for, for years now. They call it the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what it's saying is, is that there is becoming a, a separation where there are those, this percentage of those who, who hold strongly is growing, and there's a percentage that is growing strongly of people who claim nothing, whether that's atheism, agnosticism, or just no affiliations. And what's going away is the, what, what Tim Keller calls the mushy middle. The people who, who used to come to church because you have to. Come to church because you're supposed to. The nominal Christian. That's which is what, what I am. That's just what we are. We're Christians. Right? That's going away societally. This doesn't mean that there are fewer Christians. Rather, it means that there are fewer Christians in name only. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a very good thing. It's not that Christianity is, is shrinking in America. What's shrinking in America is the category of so-called Christians. We actually find that those who are holding firm to an orthodox conservative theology is growing. It's actually a growing percentage. Overall, it looks like it's a decline because the number is changing, but that doesn't mean Christians are changing. The point here is this. The point is, is that there are a lot of Christians who have acted, let me rephrase that. There's a lot of so-called Christians in name only that have acted the part. They have believed a false confidence and will woefully be disappointed at the judgments. They will hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, which is one of the scarier passages in the Bible, when Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you. And they say, well, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing? And they say, you are not doing the Father's business. What's the point of the statistics? The point is to say this. It's simple. There are thousands of souls in Tuscola County. And it may be that there are many thousands that have yet to know Christ. There are many people who need to know about him. Who's going to tell them? Who is tasked with telling them? We are. That's how this works. That's how Jesus makes disciples. Through you and me. We are called to make more disciples. C.H. Spurgeon gives this quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in with the teeth of our exhortations, exertions or efforts. And let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. You and I cannot save anyone. We do not do the saving. God alone does the saving. Our responsibility is to tell. Our responsibility is to warn. How will they know if they are not told? Romans chapter 10. How will they call in whom they have not believed? How will they believe on him who have they not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, 
If you've never come to the point in your life where you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, today is the day. Man, stop what you're doing and come to Christ. God, for, God so loved the world that he made you and he sent his son to save you because sin has separated you. Through the work of Christ, we can now be saved by repenting of our sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10 also says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on the name of the Lord today? Christian, who in your life needs to hear about Jesus? Even right now, names or a name should be sparking in your mind. Who needs to hear about Jesus? Who needs to be warned about what is to come? The church is to be making more disciples. Secondly, better disciples. Verse 5 says, they were strengthened in the faith. Strengthened means to make firm, solid, like, like muscles. It's related to health. These believers were, were strengthened. They were encouraged. They were supported. They were made ready in the faith or f- for faithfulness. Now, making disciples is not only about evangelism or about conversion. Sometimes that's what we think about when we hear make disciples. We, we hear get people saved or help people meet Jesus. And it is that, but it's not only that. Making disciples involves more than just conversion. It also involves growing, being strengthened, built up, equipped, mature. This happens as we hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, to teach them to observe all things. He first tells them to make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to observe all things. What is he saying? He's saying it doesn't end with them just converting or just, just trusting me. It continues. Sometimes we like to categorize this as discipleship or helping people grow up in Christ. True discipleship is not either evangelism or growth, but it's both. It's evangelism and growth. This growth, this making of better disciples is not an option. It's not, it's not just this, just conversion is, is what God wants and then, man, if we can grow, that'd be a really good idea. No, 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 that, that's, not, that's not the point. God isn't just, just about converting people. He's about helping people grow. It's not like sanctification and salvation are mutually exclusive. Like you can have one without the other. As if you could say, I just want to be saved and not be conformed. Or I want the reward of God's salvation without its intended effect. If that's you, if that's what you're saying, you want to get out of hell, but you don't actually want to follow Jesus, then I would suggest to you that you're not actually following Jesus. You actually don't know Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to, wait for it, follow Jesus. To be a disciple is to be discipled. To come to Christ is to become like Christ. To grow, to change, to be strengthened, to be better. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a story of the rich young ruler. It's a cautionary tale. Because what the rich young ruler wanted is he wanted the life the life Jesus gave without giving Jesus his life. He wanted the life that Jesus gave without giving Jesus his life. How can I have, have, have eternal life? Jesus says, well, it involves a, a change of, of your life. Well, no, well, I'm not going to do that. I just, I just want the life. I don't want to give up my life for that life. 
That's not an option. That's not how it works. Christian, as one writer says, healthy things grow and growing things change. If you're a Christian, if you're a healthy Christian, you're growing. And what growing means is changing. Some of us don't like change. I understand that. But it's actually an, an effect of growth. It's an effect of life. That's what happens. That's the natural progress. My wife planted tomato plants. It would be sad if nothing ever changed, right? If they just sat there and never sprouted and never became a, a, a whatever, and then green, and then orange, and then eaten, right? That would, be, that would be bad. You would say that's not how that's supposed to work. Well, the true here too, that the fruit of actually being a Christian is that there is growth and there is change. And the question really for you today is, can you look back at your life and see a change? Can you look back two decades, two years, two months, two days, and see any sort of change happening? We ought to be able to look at our life and see how God is strengthening us in the faith. John Newton says this. Maybe we could say it with him. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what we're about. That's what we are about here. We are not about arrival, we're about becoming. We're not about perfection, we're about progress. We're not about apprehending, we're about pressing on. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. A changed life in Christ brings glory to God. You've heard me say this before, but we, this is a quotation from a man named Jeff Vanderstelt. We are a family of missionary servants who make disciples who make disciples. Making disciples is the natural response to the gospel of Jesus. Means, this means, it is what a disciple does. Making disciples is what a disciple does. That's the natural response of a disciple. Better disciples make more disciples. Finally, why? For the glory of God. I want to end with the scripture that we ended the service with last week. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. It's all about the glory of God. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about God getting the glory. Not about me getting the glory. Not about our church getting glory. It's not about bigger budgets. It's not about bigger buildings. It's not about any of those things. It's about the glory of the one true and living God. So we could say it this way. The church exists to make more and better disciples for the glory of God. Or even more simplistic, more disciples, better disciples for God's glory. That's what this is about. That's what we exist for. That's the goal. I want you to know as your pastor, that's my goal for you. That if you don't know Jesus, that you come to Jesus, the more. And if you know Jesus, that you're growing in him, becoming better. Why? Not so we can look at our list of all these members and think, oh, wow, look at our church is growing in numbers. That's not the point. As people surrender their life to Jesus, God gets glory. That's what we're doing. That's what this is even today. As we sing, here I am to worship. It's about God getting glory.
When you go home today, it's about God getting glory in the way you interact with your family. When you go to work tomorrow, it's about God getting glory in how you do your job. When you get in your car and you go down the road, it's about God getting glory on how you drive. It's his glory in all things. Discipleship is what the church is about. It's God's work, and he does his work through us, through his gospel. We're simply the messengers. So let me just ask you this. Will you be part of making disciples? And how? How will you do it? In your homes, parents, families, how will you do that? At school, students, teachers, in your place of work, employees, employers, in your neighborhood or communities? Who in your neighborhood needs to hear about Jesus? In your Sunday school class or your Awana group or your life group or your youth group? Who needs to hear about Jesus? Who needs to become a disciple? Now, just as Jesus ascended back to the Father, he left his disciples with um, a few words. And his parting words make the commission even reasonable. And this is what he says. This is the last part of Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, says this, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You don't go alone. You don't make a disciple on your own. You can't make a disciple on your own. But God through you, he goes with us. So let's go. Right? Church, let's, let's be on mission. May this church, a year from now, six months from now, two months from now, may we see more disciples that are part of our church. May we see better disciples, people who are repenting of their sin and following Jesus. May that be true for us. And would God help us to do that? Let's pray that he would. Father, we are asking for you to do it. No pastor can make more disciples. No pastor can make better disciples. I can't do that. But what I can do and what we all can do is leave this place with the glorious gospel of grace and share that with somebody else. For many of us, even as we sit here, we know the name. We, we, we could say it right now. You know that we know the name. Give us opportunity. Give us wisdom to see the opportunity. Give us courage to take the opportunity. 